If you really want to know about war, who's murdering and torturing, who's giving the orders, and which weapons are being used, much of it is out there on the internet. And Elliot Higgins, British founder of the group Bellingcat, has been mining that raw data and incriminating the brutal and powerful. In Ukraine, his investigators are poring over evidence of Russian war crimes, but he's not averse to looking at Western actions elsewhere. We have written about, you know, U.S. airstrikes in Syria that's killed civilians. We've written about Afghanistan and other topics where the U.S. and other Western states are involved. Um, it's just Russia's up to a lot of really bad stuff. Higgins doesn't flinch from naming names, but he fights on an information battlefield where facts, however detailed, are routinely contested and dismissed as fake news. Is truth already a devalued currency? Elliot Higgins, welcome to Conflict Zone. Thanks for having me on. Naming killers, going after war criminals, you've poked some extremely powerful bears in painful places. Do you worry about what kind of danger they might pose to you? Well, it's something that's always a constant concern, both to myself and Bellingcat as an organisation. Um, really, since 2015 onwards, we've been targeted in various ways, first starting with disinformation campaigns from the Russian media, then cyber attacks that have really been a constant feature of our, our lives really at Bellingcat. Um, and of course, now, as we're looking more and more into the behavior of the Russian intelligence services, there's um, you know, increasing security issues that we have to be concerned about. In July, the Russian prosecutor general designated you as an undesirable organization, presenting what they called a threat to Russia's constitutional order and security. Um, did you treat that as a warning? You certainly got under their skin. Um, or do you see that as a badge of honor? Um, really both. Our real concern is that we continue to be kind of escalated from uh, really just a troublemaker in the eyes of the Russian Federation to the kind of more severe statuses where we're effectively, effectively designated as a terrorist organization because that has a huge impact on not just us, but also those people who work with us and support us. So, um, you know, there really has been an escalation over the years from Russia, starting with, you know, just disinformation all the way now to being declared undesirable. You wrote in your book that whilst you can do little to stop an attack, our opponents, you said, can do nothing to stop what we're becoming. What are you becoming? Well, I mean, we're growing in a whole range of different ways. We're doing an increasing amount of work on justice and accountability, really examining how open source investigation can be used in legal processes. Um, and that's something we're being very successful with at the moment, especially with the conflict in Ukraine. I want to come on to Ukraine a little later, if I may, but the, the information world as such has become a pretty nasty place, not least in the courts, hasn't it? One of Putin's closest allies, Yevgeny Prigozhin, sued you for defamation over claims that he was the boss of the mercenary group Wagner, but the lawsuit was dropped. You, though, went after his British lawyers and filed a complaint against them with regulators in the UK and said what they'd done had been possibly an abuse of process. Why? Well, in the UK, we have a lot of issues with um, slap cases. So, um, Slap is, is strategic a... lawsuit against public participation. Effectively, yes. Yeah. So this was a very clear case of that. I mean, we now know that he's admitted he was behind Wagner all along. It's like he's pulled his kind of mask off and it was his face behind it all the time, even though we all really knew that. 
Um, and he's effectively admitted that these legal cases are to attack his critics. Um, and actually, muzzle course, the press. And muzzle the press. This was the object yeah, of it, absolutely. was it? Yeah, and we, there was actually reporting in The Intercept based off emails that were hacked um, that belonged to his Russian lawyers, where there were communications back and forth between the lawyers in Russia and the UK. And there it was very clear that the reason he went after me was because our work was cited in the EU paperwork relating to sanctions against him. So it's a reaction to that, trying to attack us, undermine our work and really undermine the EU sanctions against him. So how important was it to win this battle? Well, I mean, there was... Um... I mean, in a way, we won by default because his lawyers pulled out of the case and then he didn't really respond correctly to the court. Had he have actually got his act together, it could have cost us hundreds of thousands of pounds. And, you know, Bellingcat is not a massive organisation with that kind of budget. And I was very lucky that Bellingcat was paying my legal bills because rather than going after Bellingcat, he went after me personally, um, basically for some tweets I put out linking to articles that he said had defamatory content in it. Keep in mind, he had to get sanctions relief, relief in the UK to be able to pay his lawyers to sue me for saying the thing that he was sanctioned for. So I found myself in this very bizarre situation where effectively the Treasury was giving him permission to sue me for the thing he was sanctioned for. Um, so I, I, it was a very difficult situation for me. I Let's mean, talk about Ukraine, if we may. You've, you've had an office in The Hague for some time and you assist the International Criminal Court in shining whatever light you can on war crimes and those who commit them. How's that work going in Ukraine? Well, with Ukraine, um, we're currently using a process we've developed originally examining Saudi airstrikes in Yemen to investigate conflict incidents using open source evidence. I, when I started doing this work and I founded Bellingham in 2014, I sort of presumed other people would do that, that they'd figure out the processes. But what we've actually found is we've actually been leading those processes. So we've been working with international lawyers and other organisations to develop this really robust process for investigation. And effectively, this means we can create case files that we can pass on to various bodies, for example, you know, an ICC or something like that. I'd like to talk about a particular case. In, in April, you looked at reports of massive human rights violations in the town of Bucha, uh, near Kiev, when it was under Russian occupation. The Russians said your claims were false. They always say that. But how far were you able to challenge their rebuttals? Well, I mean, really, Russian disinformation around incidents like Bucha has really been quite pathetic. I mean, only last week, the Russian social media accounts of their various embassies were sharing a video about various you know, denials they were making. And one of those denials was effectively based off a kind of random French guy who made these very kind of um, exaggerated claims, claiming he was there and he would watch the Azov battalion placing bodies on the ground just whilst other journalists were watching it happen, which is absolute nonsense. We have drone imagery, satellite imagery and other sources from before Ukrainian forces enter the town that shows those same bodies in place for weeks before they arrived. We now have, of course, the work of many organisations who've been on the ground talking to witnesses and have been able to verify why those bodies were there in the first place. You know, executions by Russian forces. You know, even one person who was part of a group of men who were led away, all of them were shot and he played dead and he was the only survivor, but also a very crucial witness. There's CCTV footage of the men being led away and then photographs of the corpses of the men where they were shot. So... There really is a huge wealth of evidence. And for me, what's been really interesting is 
With the conflict in Syria, which is something I've followed for a very long time, there was a constant frustration that no matter how what good an investigation did, no matter the evidence, there really wasn't any chance for accountability because obviously the Syrian government wasn't going to look into its own war crimes. But with Ukraine, you have a very different situation because you have a government who wants to investigate the war crimes happening in its own country. And you also have a big global movement, a coalition of organizations supporting that kind of work. Um, so I think in all the recent modern conflicts, if we're looking for accountability for these sorts of crimes, Ukraine really is the best hope for that. And if that there isn't any accountability, we really have to look at how our systems for accountability work, because it really is the best possible circumstances for that to happen. On, on the subject of accountability, to what extent has it been possible to match individual atrocities to people who carried them out? It's, it's difficult work, but fortunately, because uh, Russian operational security is very, very poor, they use open communications lines, they, um, you know... Want so you've, the past hacked, you've hacked into their communications? You don't have to hack into them. I mean, it's, they use open radio networks. That, that Very early on in the conflict, for example, you could go to a website where people have set up just live streams of Russian radio communications, and you could hear them talking back and forth. You also have the fact that the Ukrainian government and the intelligence services in Ukraine are mass recording every possible intercepted call that they can find. And you see a lot of these calls being published where you have Russian soldiers talking to their family at home about the situation. Um, so they're really, I, I, I think there's such a huge amount of evidence that it's not an issue of the lack of evidence. It's an issue of being able to piece together cases and prosecutions from the wealth of evidence that exists at the moment. In August, you reported on your efforts to track the killers who mutilated and executed a Ukrainian prisoner. You, you started with three horrifying videos on a Russian telegram channel, and you ended up with the actual phone number of a suspect who spoke to you, knowing that you were journalists, but he denied the key accusations. Do you think you got the right person here? I think so, yeah. I, when you're doing this kind of work... There are alternative scenarios you can explore. There's like, okay, what if this is, you know, it isn't what it appears to be? What circumstances could that really come around? And given the information that we had, we knew where they were. We had the same person on another video at the same location. We could see he was wearing the same clothes. There are vehicles in the videos that were visible in other videos that he featured in. Um, it's really hard to imagine any other scenario. It would literally involve someone else dressing up in all his clothes, wearing his same kind of jewellery and you know other details, and pretending to be him for the purposes of making this video, and also having the collaboration of other Russians to do that. So often with this work, you're looking at really the percentage probability of something being true, and it becomes vanishingly small at some point that it could be any other scenario than the ones that we've explored. You, you talk about his clothes, you talk about the bracelet that he was wearing, the hat he was wearing, even down to the skin tones. This is a, a phenomenal amount of detail, isn't it? How many hundreds, maybe thousands of hours went into this? I mean, it wasn't that complex. I mean, it helped that we had a very small amount of kind of material to examine. The really tricky part was trying to find reference material for the site that they were in. You had this very blurry, low-quality video, and what we're trying to establish is exactly where this video was filmed. 
But fortunately, thanks to the kind of group effort that we had pouring through this content, we were able to find very small details in the videos that then could be matched to other footage. In fact, one of the key pieces of footage was a YouTube video that some people riding, I believe it was dirt bikes through the same area, filming as they went on GoPro cameras, provided us lots of really useful footage from the ground where we were able to match very small details to what was in the video showing the mutilation happening. Where did the motivation come for you to, to do this kind of work? You had a clerical job in the city of Leicester. You played a lot of computer games. How did you get the motivation that led to the startup of Bellingcat and to try to hold criminals uh, responsible and accountable for the crimes they commit? How did you get to there? It was quite gradual. I mean, I, when I started doing this, I was really just, you know, someone who was spending a lot of time on the internet forums. I had an interest in politics and what was happening with the Arab Spring. And I was very much kind of part of online culture where you'd kind of argue with people on the internet about this and that. And I, I found it a bit frustrating that you had coverage of Libya where you'd have the mainstream newspapers kind of writing what was happening based off their reporters. But you then had this wealth of information that came from sources on the ground, people filming stuff sharing it on social media and other platforms. And it was largely being ignored. And really the only people who were taking it seriously were conspiracy theorists who would use it as evidence to support whichever theory they you know, had about you know, the CIA being involved or this or that. But I realized there was something you could actually do that actually gave you a much deeper understanding and a more granular understanding of the conflict. Um, but it became increasingly clear that I was finding stuff that no one else was finding. And I think it really came to a head in 2013. Was it because they weren't looking? that you found it? I, I think part of it was that they didn't know how to verify the content on social media. There had been some scandals in the past, like in 2012, there was a blogger called Gay Girl in Damascus who was widely cited in a lot of Western media, who turned out to be a white guy in America, just pretending to be that person. And I think a lot of people found that very embarrassing and it made it harder to trust social media. But I developed processes for verification of things like the location something was filmed. And really over the years, I built kind of more and more methodologies, drawing in the experience of other people until we were able to really have a, almost a complete suite of investigative methodologies that could produce evidence to a very high standard and a verifiable standard as well. And I think this really changed dramatically when we started investigating what happened to MH17 in Eastern Ukraine. The Malaysian air, airliner that was shot down. That's right, because Bellingcat was launched just before MH17 was shot down. And at that time, Bellingcat was me. And, just three days you know, before, wasn't it? It was three days before, yeah. And that itself launched several conspiracy theories about, you know, why we were suddenly launched and so interested in it. But Ta really Talking of there, those conspiracy theories, do you have any kind of relationship with Western security services? This is some of the things that's said about you. There's many people who believe we are talking to the CIA, MI5, MI6, everyone on a regular basis or were funded by them. And even the Russians have made that accusation. And I get the feeling they genuinely believe that at this point. Um, but that's not true. And we, we take a lot of steps to you know, be transparent in our sources and our evidence. We are transparent about our funding. We are a charity, so we're independently audited. So we try to be as transparent as possible. But you're always going to have people who you know, believe in conspiracy theories. That's just the nature of the Internet. In several investigations, you and your partners have identified a number of individual assassins employed by the Russian state. You've tracked their movements, their phone calls, their homes, their car registrations, their internal documents, even the numbers on their tickets. 
safe to say, isn't it, that none of these people are likely to face trial for what they've done. So what's the best you can hope for? We talked earlier about accountability. Do you want to put them as individuals out of business, um, deter other people from doing the same kind of things, that sort of thing? Well, I mean, we've certainly already seen that our reporting has made it difficult for certain Russian spies to operate. There was one case we were looking into, um, we published recently, about a woman called uh, Maria Adela, who was a um, socialite in uh, Naples. She had a fashion shop. She kind of went to lots of parties. And she was part of a club that the local NATO, NATO base ran, um, the Lions Club. And it turned out she was actually a Russian spy, because what we discovered is Russians had been using sequential passport numbers for their fake identity documents for their spies, and she was in one of those sequences of numbers. And Isn't we that didn't know pretty that. sloppy on their, on, on their part? Well, their the part. thing is, they've got away with it for a long time, so why would they change the way they operate? And we only found this out effectively because Russia is corrupt from top to bottom. A lot of the work we've done exposing spies is based off using data that we acquire from the data markets in Russia. So in Russia... Everyone is basically at every level of government is on the take in some way or another. And a lot of data is sold public, you know, on public markets. It's supposed to be illegal, but no one really cares because you never get caught and you can make, you know, a week's wage in one transaction. So we are buying things like phone records, um, flight records, tickets, passport documents, really granular information. And the thing is, Russia is effectively a police state. So they collect a huge amount of information on their citizens even their own spies. So we were able to get phone records that allowed us to establish not only who they were calling, but thanks to the connection to cell phone towers, their movements. And we've done this with the Scripple case, the Navani poisoning, and many other cases. This has inflicted a huge humiliation, in a way, on the Russian state, hasn't it? Because you're identifying the people they use to assassinate their political opponents. Do you have any idea how this went down with Russia's security services, how they reacted to your revelations? with witch hunts or sackings? How, how did they react? Well, for the actual people who identify, I mean, in many cases, they've kind of been put onto desk jobs now. You know, they can't operate in the field anymore. So, you know, our, it's not just about the spies we publish about, but also the other ones who are associated with them. They don't know, you know, what we know about their spies at the moment. They also, I think, are pretty convinced that we're part of the intelligence services because in Russia, if an organization like Bellingcat existed looking at the West, it would definitely be involved with the intelligence services. We had the head of the SVR, for example, the Russian Domestic Intelligence Service, doing an interview where he went out of his way to talk about Bellingcat being part of the intelligence services. So they definitely know who we are. I'm sure they're absolutely convinced that we're working for the intelligence services. Um, but so far, they've not really had much of an effective counter to what we're doing because a lot of our work on identifying these spies is based on the fact that the entire Russian system is corrupt and that we're able to access data that really isn't possible to access in other countries. We've um, talked a bit about what you are prepared to do. You, you buy material um, on the, I suppose you could call it the in internet black market. This is the dark web, isn't it? Um, you do online investigations. Is there anyone you won't investigate? I mean, for instance, British or American troops, there have been accusations of war crimes in Afghanistan, for instance. Would you investigate those? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're, we're more interested in issues around accountability. So we wouldn't go, you know, be looking into celebrities and what they're up to, because that's really, you know, just tabloid nonsense, really. 
But if there's a war crime, some violation, then that's something we'd look into. And while I think we do have a reputation for really focusing a lot on Russia, we have written about, you know, U.S. airstrikes in Syria that's killed civilians. We've written about Afghanistan and other topics where the U.S. and other Western states are involved. Um, it's just Russia's up to a lot of really bad stuff, so it gives us a lot more to write about. Plus, they're very bad at information security, so it really opens up a lot of opportunities for investigation in Russia. Looking ahead, you've, you've spoken out against what you call cyber-miserabilism, this uh, tendency to dismiss the internet as a wrecking ball, destroying journalism and politics. And you put it this way, you said the marvels of the internet can still have an impact for the better. But those marvels are being steadily eroded, aren't they? This year, Freedom House warned that governments were what they called breaking apart the global internet to create more controllable online spaces. Global internet freedom, according to Freedom House, has declined for the 12th consecutive year. This must make the environment in which you operate much more difficult, doesn't it? I mean, in a sense, it doesn't, because at the same time, we're actually having more communities coming together who are pushing against that in different ways. If you look at the current conflict in Ukraine, for example, from the very early days of the conflict, even before the conflict began, you had online communities who came together and were effectively gathering and processing information in this very ad hoc way. So, for example, prior to the invasion, you had a lot of people who were looking at Russian TikTok accounts who were filming convoys just because it was an interesting thing that was happening in their lives. But by piecing all that information together, it was very clear that the troop buildup on the border was not the training exercise that Russians claimed, but was in fact a prelude to the invasion. You then had, just prior to the invasion, disinformation being put out by people like the Donetsk People's Republic that was almost instantaneously being debunked as soon as it was being published by online communities who had come together. After that, you had you know, organizations who were working on legal accountability, on activism, on human rights issues, really rapidly coming together and really enabled by the Internet and partly by open source evidence being available and something that anyone could examine. And I think really what we've seen over the past eight years or so um, you know, through the existence of Balancat is the groundwork being put in to build these communities and build these networks and also help people understand the value of open source evidence when it comes to investigating conflict. And I think Ukraine is really the first time I've seen media organizations, NGOs, accountability organizations, and online communities really seeing the value of open source investigation. And I think at this point, if you aren't using open source evidence to understand what's happening in Ukraine, then you aren't really, you know, there's an understanding, you aren't really doing the most that you can to understand the conflict. Isn't the biggest problem for people like you who deal in evidence and proof that facts are too often negated by beliefs? You take Donald Trump's claim, for instance, that Joe Biden stole his election. Not a single fact to prove that, but tens of millions of Americans believe it. Facts of the kind that you offer, minutely researched, with exact names, dates, locations attached, they're a devalued currency, aren't they, if people don't accept them? It depends how you want to use that evidence. One reason we're focused on justice and accountability is because, you know, in one sense, a court of law is the best place you can present this evidence, especially when the other side is presenting disinformation and kind of alternative facts. 
But on the other side, you have this kind of communities growing up and developing online who are kind of fully engulfed in disinformation. But it's not because the people joining those communities want disinformation. They see themselves truth seekers against the mainstream orthodoxy. And often a big motivating factor for those people to find those communities is a distrust in traditional sources of authority, be they governments or be they medical professionals in the sense of COVID. And often that comes from a sense of betrayal. Now, if you look at, for example, the kind of counterfactual community that's formed around chemical weapon use in Syria, for example, where they think that all the chemical weapon attacks are faked and that the West is just trying to find an excuse to invade Syria, a lot of them cite the invasion of Iraq in 2003 as a kind of key moment in their understanding of how the world works. And I think in a sense, you have this kind of traumatic moral injury happening where they're, they're so offended morally by what's happened that they see the entire world through that lens. And that means the US and the West always has to be the bad guy and whoever opposes them has to be the good guy. And you see this pattern repeated time and time again in a whole range of different fields and um, subjects. You know, if you look at coronavirus and conspiracy theories around that, again, there's this deep-rooted distrust in government, for example, or it might be a distrust in medical professionals. And that's because often they've usually, you know, the individuals have had some, you know, moral injury or trauma because of that. And I think what the internet allows us to do is find like-minded people who effectively kind of reinforce that trauma, that moral injury, and create media ecosystems where you can feel that you're actually a truth seeker and you're part of a community that's having an impact when really you're being given a false sense of empowerment. And really what we're trying to do at Bellingcat is show people actually you can have a positive impact even if you do feel that you know the government isn't telling you the truth. There's a way to find that truth and it's far more effective than just finding people who will just kind of tell you what you want to believe and just think you are powerful because you're upsetting other people on the internet. All right, Elliot Higgins, we could have gone on much longer. Thanks very much for being on Conflict Zone. Thank you for your time. Thank you.